According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew 18 as we get started. Matthew 18. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, shall we pray? Mighty Father, we thank you for this day and for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We ask, Father, for your faithfulness to be manifest. We ask, Father, for for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to be effective and powerful as he guides us in the truth. We thank you for believers that establish a priority in taking in the word of God. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are ready for episode 53 in the life of Christ. We did episode 52 last week. I mentioned that it was a one, a one uh, session episode, number 52. So we move on to number 53. And this uh, will not be a single episode. This is going to actually be some lengthy development to go through. We have Matthew 18, Mark 9, and Luke chapter 9 that we want to go through and deal with, although today we're going to be in Matthew. We're going to let Mark and Luke go until subsequent classes. Just by way of review, we are within a year of the crucifixion. In fact, we are very quickly going to be within six months of the crucifixion. The final event that brings the um, Galilean ministry to a close is uh, very quickly upon us here where he is urged by his brothers to go up to Jerusalem to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles comes in the fall. And uh, specifically, uh, it was one of the three feasts where Jewish uh, uh, men were required to present themselves before Jehovah at the temple on an annual basis. They had to appear at the Feast of uh, Passover. They had to appear again at the Feast of Tabernacle or at the Feast of Pentecost. And then in the fall, they had to make the appearance here at the Feast of Booths, ultimately the, the Day of Atonement. So uh, that season is approaching, and Jesus' brothers are still unbelievers, and they want him to go up in John chapter 7, they want him to go up to Jerusalem and make a big splash, make a big name for himself, accumulate more followers. Uh, evidently his disciples or his brothers were pretty uh, depressed over the, the dwindling number of disciples that Jesus was, was uh, observing. He was down to the twelve, really, uh, after having reached a peak on the feeding on the 5,000 and all the, all the rest, really numbers started to drop off in the last year. And uh, he's about to hit rock bottom. And his brothers had the idea that one way he could uh, improve things, one way he could uh, increase his numbers is to get out of Galilee and get down there to Jerusalem where he could uh, draw a better crowd. So that's coming up. And that will actually bring the Galilean ministry to a close and allow us to move on to the Perean ministry, and then ultimately the final Judean ministry there. All right. You dropping the temperature down a little bit? Please. Yes, that would be good. That would be good. All right. So Matthew chapter 18. After uh, the deal with paying for the taxes at the end of chapter 17 that we dealt with last week, 
We read in verse 1 of Matthew 18, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set, uh, and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to have to teach here and be very careful that we're not promoting childishness. You and I are not to become childish, we're to become childlike. All right? And so far as childish is concerned, uh, the Lord doesn't have any time for that, and neither do I. You want to act childish around here, uh, go ahead and try, but we'll see how far you get with that. No, it's not about being childish. It's about being childlike, all right? And that, of course, is uh, spoken of as a positive thing. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, becoming childlike is an application of humility. It represents a trust. It represents a genuine, humble trust in a loving father that has a plan for us. Becoming childish is anything but but humble. It is prideful. It is arrogant. It is selfish. And it is not focused on a loving father who wants all of the best for us. It focuses on a selfish person who uh, doesn't care what God wants. No, we're not here to be childish. We're here to be childlike. And so we're going to develop these themes in the process of this episode. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And what's interesting is that uh, our attitude towards others, particularly towards those who can be of no benefit to us at all, is critical. Whether it's a child, whether it's a stranger, whether it's the poor. The book of James talks about not showing favoritism to the rich and dismissing the poor. Well, why is that? Well, you, you can show favoritism to the rich if you th- think that they can do something for you. If you think that they can be a benefit to you. See, and the whole idea there is, of course, that there is no such place as favoritism or place for that in the Christian way of life. Same thing holds true here for a child. What's a child going to do for you? How's a child going to benefit you? A child uh, will will do nothing in terms of your advancement. If anything, it will slow you down, which is why uh, this world system minimizes children and says, oh, no, no, you don't want children. Or they they get critical of a woman who wants to stay home and raise children as if somehow that's a a detriment to her her advancement in career and her, her worth as a person and all the rest. All right, so we'll talk about that. Receiving such a child, being a blessing for a child, is not spoken of in a negative way here. It is actually rewardable because in receiving one, you receive Christ. Then verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. All right, as I said, um, this attitude will come into judgment, very quick judgment, severe judgment. And having a millstone around your neck and being drowned, that doesn't sound pleasant. There's a reason for that. All right. This uh, event, let me give you some points of study, and then we'll kind of give a big picture, and then we'll kind of focus in on greatness. We're going to have uh, three overall points, but point two is the meat of the study that really gets developed out with subpoints A through G. So that'll just give you an idea where the outline's going. This single episode is actually a series of events. A series of events which all center on the need for humility. This episode is going to be a little bit hard. Last week was easy. Pay your taxes, right? You know, last week was easy. They, they, uh, the critics came and said, hey, you know, you're a little bit delinquent on this. Uh, does your master not pay the, the two drachma tax? 
Peter says, well, of course he does. And then he goes inside to find out, right? And uh, the Lord says, yes, you know, we're not going to be a stumbling block. Um, the same term that we have here, so that we do not offend them, is what ends chapter 17. So we do not offend them. Uh, you know, go throw a hook in the sea. You're, you're going to catch a fish. And when you open the mouth, you'll find the coin there. And you can pay your own taxes and mine as well. That was a simple one episode shot. This one is uh, is more involved. In fact, it's not actually a single episode. It is a series of events. It's summarized in a single episode. We give it a, a single episode title. Disciples contend about greatness. But there are actually more incidents involved in this one episode. There's a series of events. In fact, I'm going to give you an outline for uh, all of those events here today so you know where we're going to go in our upcoming classes. Also, oh, I should also point out, let me back up. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 35. We're going to cover all 35 verses in the, in the Matthew outline. Mark 9, 33 through 50. All right, you've got 18 verses there. It's about half of, uh, of um, the material that's found in Matthew. And then Luke 9, verses 46 through 50. That is a change from your harmony of the Gospels. All right? In your harmony of the Gospels, this event uh, is listed as Luke 9, verses 46 through 62. Okay? And I've gone ahead and made a change to that because that overlaps and doubles up with some of the incidents we have coming up. Episodes 55 and 56 and 57, for example, have... Uh, uh, Luke 9, verses 51 through 62 is a part of their development. So if you ever look at your harmony, you'll see that there is an overlap there. And I think that is a flaw in the Thomas Nelson um, harmony of the Gospels that we're adapting for our class here. So I've gone ahead and I've shortened that to verse 50. And if you want to make a pen and ink change to your harmony table, feel free to do that. I don't know that I'm going to reprint the harmonies at this point, but uh, I have shortened the Luke account. All right. So this is what we have here in Matthew. Let's just scan our way through the uh, through the text, and you'll see where we're going to go here with the um, with the outline. And I'll give it to you. We're going to start with greatness under subpoint A. So point two is Matthew's events. Later on, we'll get to Mark and Luke's events under point three. So under point two, we can just look at Matthew's events, and we're going to start with the argument about greatness. Disciples argue about greatness, all right? Uh, recorded here in Matthew 18, 1, the parallel accounts in Mark 9 and Luke 9. We'll see those here shortly. And uh, our whole class today is going to be centered on this one point. The whole class today is going to be wrapped up about greatness. We want to find out how to be great. You and I want to be great, don't you? question is, do you want to be great in this life or do you want to be great in the next? And why do you want to be great? And uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great, but understanding the context for what defines greatness makes all the difference in the world. I want to be great. Why do I want to be great? Because Christ is worthy. Because I want to glorify Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a loser in the Christian way of life. So there, it's legitimate to say, I want to be great. Some believers would, would get ruffled feathers at that. They don't, they don't like the way I express that. Ooh, no, 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 I don't want to be great. Well, why not? Why do you not want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the judgment seat of Christ? Why do you not want to be a mature believer, a hero of the faith? For the Old Testament saints, 
that got listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Was that a bad thing? No, those believers were great. Not them, of course, but God in them. See, and if we keep the context appropriately uh, in, in its right perspective, then there's nothing wrong with saying, I want to be great. Uh, by I want to be great, what I'm saying is I want Jesus Christ to be manifest greatly through my life. And that means I'm going to have struggles. It means I'm going to be tested. It means I'm going to have hardship. It means I'm going to have to take up a cross. Well, so be it. All right. Let's understand the terms. The arguing about greatness is not an illegitimate complaint. It is not wrong. What was wrong was their attitude behind what they were arguing about and the motivation in terms of why a person would want to be great. Let me go ahead. I'm going to skip by all of what I have prepared for today. Let me give you the big outline. Where we're going to go next is we're going to go with the, the, the child illustration when he brings a child towards him. And he, used, he didn't have PowerPoint, so what did he do? <laughs> he brought a child up and set the child there in front of him and said, Here, this is my PowerPoint slideshow. This little kid, okay? Whoever the kid was. Might have been Mark, for all we know. I don't think it was. I think Mark was the teenager that was caught naked in the garden. When, uh, are you familiar with that? When, when Jesus was arrested in the garden and, and everybody was fleeing from the police and everything else that was going on, there were two teenagers naked in the, in the garden. All right. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a bizarre verse in the Gospel of Mark. And it's not recorded in Matthew or Luke or John. Okay. It's only recorded in Mark's account of the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest of Jesus Christ. And we're left wondering, well, why? <laughs> why does that gospel give that story? Anecdote, really. I believe because it was Mark himself. And that was the, the only place where the author of that gospel was featured in the gospel he wrote. Anyway, can't prove it. We'll find out when we get there. So I don't think Mark was this child. Some have speculated that he was. No, I think this child was much younger. Um, and we'll go into the illustration there with a child. And we are going to learn how to become childlike. Not childish, but childlike. Thirdly. Christ warns about stumbling blocks. Now, it's a direct follow-up to the illustration with the child. But the message with the child is more than just don't be a stumbling block. Okay? We want to get the positive message out of the child uh, teaching first. Okay? The, the teaching on childlike attitudes comes in verses 2 through 6. The warning about stumbling blocks comes in 7 through 10. And, and Jesus had a greater purpose for bringing that child forward than just simply saying, don't be a stumbling block to this kid. Before he even said the thing about stumbling blocks, he said, you need to imitate this kid. You need to become childlike in your faith. And so we will address that as well. Also, the, as I pointed out, the issue on stumbling blocks is a uh, follow-up to the uh, way in which chapter 17 ended. We don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. We don't want to be a stumbling block to the adversary, to the enemies, and that's who these tax collectors were, uh, these didrachma collectors. Uh, he didn't want to be a stumbling block to them, and that's true. Uh, to the adversaries that are out there in this fallen world, I don't want to be a stumbling block. Um, I, I found out this week that there's a, a, a family that uh, in, in my son's scout troop, and I found out this week that they're Jewish. I didn't know that. And so now I have... Uh, 
uh, a little bit of information, more information this week than I had last week. And I want to be cautious as I discuss things with them that knowing what I know now, that I don't want to be a stumbling block or say anything or do anything that might uh, be offensive to their Jewish uh, background, their culture or their heritage or, or their family, anything like that. Okay, I don't want to be a stumbling block to the lost. You know, I don't mind in this setting, in front of you guys, saying that uh, the the that Muhammad was a false prophet and that the Quran is a pack of lies from the pit of hell. I'll tell you that today, tomorrow, any day this week. But if I'm out there and I come face to face with a Muslim, I'm I'm going to be a little bit more diplomatic about it, right? I don't want to be a stumbling block. I, it's not, not that my beliefs are any different, but I'm not going to be as in your face and throwing that stumbling block out there. I still want to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, absolutely. All right. There's other things I can illustrate with this. In fact, when the newsletter comes out next week, you'll see I wrote an article about uh, movies. And why I don't get wrapped up and all wild and crazy and protesting about things like Harry Potter, for example. Some Christians do. And I understand that. I just don't want to be a stumbling block. That's my uh, overall driving issue. All right. So he warns about stumbling blocks. We're going to have a lot of teaching on that. Then uh, he gives the information here about the 90 and 9. In verses 12 through 14. There's so much teaching in this chapter. Okay. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And there is a tremendous amount of doctrine that goes into that. And there's a, a wonderful uh, song that was written about that and different things there. So we'll spend some time there. I think that there's a... <clears throat> Some doctrine to be applied in terms of what's the difference between uh, the human shepherd that shepherds a local church and the good, great, and chief shepherd that really shepherds a church. Because one of us is omnipresent. <laughs> All right? And it's not the human being that pastors a, a local church. We'll talk about that. How do, you, uh, how do you go after a lost sheep? How do you go after a straying and scattered sheep? And not neglect the 90 and 9. Then we got a passage on corporate discipline coming up that we're going to cover in verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Corporate discipline under point E. Normally, pick up a commentary, pick up 100 commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew. If you can find 100 commentaries. Look at every commentary you can find in the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to chapter 18. Read what it tells you right here. It'll tell you this is the outline for church discipline. I'm not calling it church discipline. I'm calling it corporate discipline. Church doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2. There's no church in the Gospel of Matthew. All right. Jesus Christ is walking this earth during the dispensation of Israel. Matthew is being recorded here, and these events are before the day of Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit descends, before the church age. This is not a passage on church discipline. Now, church discipline will 
utilize the principles of this passage. But this is a passage on corporate discipline. And it has an application in the dispensation of Israel as well as having, <coughs> in fact, its primary applications in the, in the nation of Israel. And it's only a secondary application that we take into a church age context for the corporate discipline of believers in a local church body. Seventy times seven comes up in verses 21 and 22. This is where Peter wants to know, how often do I have to forgive these people? Seven times? And the Lord says, oh no. Seventy times seven. Which is an idiom, and we'll give you the information on that. I don't think it's coincidental that 70 times seven is the follow-up to the corporate discipline paragraph. Because remember, the end result of corporate discipline is not punishment. The goal in applying corporate dis- discipline is not to punish the person. The goal is to prompt repentance so that the, the brother is returned to walking in the light. <coughs> and when the brother is returned to walking in the light, what's our attitude? It should be one of forgiveness. Up to seven times? How about 70 times seven? And then the last section in Matthew from verses 23 through 35, I'm calling an old account settled. An old account settled. Just like the 90 and 9 is one of my favorite songs, an old account settled is a great old gospel tune. This man's going to settle accounts. And there's a slave that owes him $155 billion. He forgives him. And then that slave goes out and there he has a fellow slave that owes him 75 cents for a Dr. Pepper or Snickers bar or whatever. You've got a massive multi-billion dollar debt here that gets forgiven. And then you've got this other debt over here. You can't even compare the two. But the king has forgiven this massive debt. And then the slave will not forgive this minuscule debt. That's quite a bit. That's, uh, that's seven different events that all take place in this one episode. This one episode that we're calling Disciples Contend About Greatness. And you see, with all of these events, we have a need for humility. Every one of these events is going to put the need for humility into a perspective for us. From the child to forgiveness to corporate discipline. You've got to have humility for corporate discipline. Because the last thing in the world you want to do is approach your brother with an attitude of superiority. Like, here, let me tell you how I'm going to fix your Christian walk. Really? Is that your attitude? <laughs> You're going to tell me how I'm going to fix my Christian walk? Okay. <laughs> well, no. It's a a humility approach, which we get in Galatians chapter 6. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, yet in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Humility in every single one of these. The 90 and 9 requires humility. Stumbling blocks requires humility. 70 times 7 requires humility. All of these events require humility. All right, let's lock in then on 2A, the argument about greatness. Sub point 1. Four things I'm going to give you out of 
the argument here regarding greatness. And I also want to go ahead and look at the uh, lexicon because some folks, uh, they wonder, well, how much do you really get out of the lexicons? What do you do with your word studies? I'm going to show you some things here out of the lexicons that I think will help us uh, in pursuing our word studies. All right. So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is what they're wrapped up about. The Greek word that's used here for greatest is meizon, M-E-I-Z-O-N, meizon. M-E-I-Z-O-N, meizon. And Strong's gave meizon the number 3187. This is where Strong's numbers can let you down a little bit and uh, actual knowledge of the, of the language becomes important. Maison is not really a word. I mean, it is a word, but it's not a separate word from megas. It's, a, it's simply a comparative form. So maison, number 3187, is the comparative of megas, number 3173. Megas, megale, and mega, those are your masculine, feminine, and neuter forms of the word. Megas being an adjective. It has masculine, feminine, and neuter genders. So, if you want to know what's the word for greatness here, the word is mega. The masculine would be megas, the feminine would be megale, and the neuter would be mega. But what we have here is a comparative, maison, greater, more great. Mega means great. Maison means more great or greater. This is a, an interesting incident where the comparative is used for the superlative. You have a greater that's used for the greatest, which is uh, clearly what they're interested in, the, in uh, determining here, who is the greatest. Let me show you, just by way of illustration, why the Strong's number will let you down. Uh, let's see. I'm going to go to Matthew 18. How about that? 1 through 35. I meant to save this earlier. Mark 9, 33 through 50. And Luke 9, 46 through 50. This is one of my standard workspaces. I'll even save it here so I don't have to do this again next time. I call it Synoptic 3. So I have three New American Standard Bibles open with three Greek Bibles underneath. They're all linked together, connected. I've got a Matthew column, a Mark column, and a Luke column. So that when you scroll in the, in the one Bible, your other Bible follows you. And uh, you keep track of where you are. All right. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, they have this word greatest tagged with Strong's number 3173. I'm going to pull this up for you here. 3173, which is your word megas. Okay? Now, let's pretend you don't know any Greek. You don't know the language. You're just looking at the concordance, and you're looking at, at uh, your Englishman's concordance, for example. You're using the tools to help do your word studies. And a lot of folks do this. This is before I learned Greek. This is how I did my word studies. All right. And, um, but see, this is where there's a weakness in the, in the, in the uh, Strong's system. 
in the numbers themselves and even in some cases in the tagging of the, uh, of the terms. Because Megas, what Strong's did, Strong's took Megas and gave it a number. Do you understand how the Strong's index even works? Okay. What, what A.H. Strong did, he lived in the 19th century in the 1800s, and it took him 20 years to do this, right? Now we search it in seconds, and we don't even think about it. But he took his Greek New Testament, did the same thing in the Hebrew Old Testament, started in Matthew, and he wrote every word in the Bible. Okay? And so he just writes it out. Every word. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 writes out every word in a, in, a, in a column. Every word in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Then every word in Matthew 1.2. Every word in Matthew 1.3. Now when a word got repeated, because words get repeated, the same word could be used hundreds of times, he, uh, he didn't write the word out a second time, but he did make a note of what verse it's in. See? So at the end, when he gets to Revelation 22, he, he's got a list of every Greek word in the Bible, in the New Testament. And a list of every verse where that word appears. Okay. Then he alphabetizes the Greek words from Alpha to Omega. And he assigns them numbers from 1 to whatever it is, 5,560 something, whatever it is. Okay. However many words are in the... Yeah, it's 5,000 something. At the end of the Strong's numbers. I thought I could go to the end very quickly. Looks like I can't. There we go. 5624 for Ophelamos. Number one is Alpha. Two is Aaron. All right? So he just alphabetized him is all he did. And it's a great system. Because what you can do then, you've got a database with these things by number. And with, with Megas, for example, they all have the same number whether uh, it's a masculine megas or it's a feminine megalay or whether it's a neuter mega, they all have the same number. They're all number 3187 uh, or 3173, excuse me. They're all 3173, regardless of what gender they are. So you can go to your, your concordance and you can look it up by number and you can say, okay, these are the list of verses I want to look at. And you don't even have to know the language. You just have to look at the number. Okay. The problem is is, well, what if Strong's made a mistake? <laughs> or what if, what if a number was mislisted or listed incorrectly and so forth? Now, in some cases, he gave different numbers to the same word, such as in the case here. He, he gave a separate number to the comparative form, Mazone, made that number 3187. Okay, 3187, let me show you. There's 3187, Mazon, M-E-I-Z-O-N, Mazon. Tells you it's an adjective, it's a comparative, it's the irregular comparative of 3173, right? You know what I just told you? Mazon is the comparative of Megas, 3173. So 3187 is the comparative of 3173. So he made them different numbers. Even though it's the same word, just the comparative form. It'd be, it's like tall and taller. You think of tall and taller. Are those different words? Yes and no. Just taller is the comparative of tall. 
Smarter is a comparative of smart. Fatter, fat, right? Say, careful now, pastor, slow down. <laughs> Whatever. Pick an adjective. Put an er on it. Smart, smarter. Okay? Now, the uh, mesone is the comparative. It's the er from great. So who's great? Who's greater? Okay? There's also a superlative form, which is est, great est. Tall est, smart est. So when we look at Matthew 18 then, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Strong's tells us that it's 3173 uh, megas. But we actually look at the text and we realize, you know what? It's not 3173 megas. Uh, Strong's actually tagged it incorrectly because the term that's used here is the term maison. And it should have a separate Strong's number right there, maison. So when you're using your helps, when you're using your Englishman's concordance, when you're using the, the tools to be able to do your word studies and look these things up, realize that the, uh, the tools are not God-breathed and inspired. Make sense? And that they are subject to, uh, they're subject to human error. And uh, in some cases, it may be a bit lengthy. For instance, you've got to look through 257 occurrences for the term megas. And then you realize, you know, some of these aren't even mega. Some of these are maison. And, uh, and they're not tagged. Here's your, here's your listing. They saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Megas. In this case, megale, because kara for joy is feminine. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They saw a great light. Um, they'd be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It is the city of the great king. Okay? And you can go through 257 verses and actually see all the uses of megas, all the uses of maison, and, and, and do these kind of searches, but just be warned that the tools are sometimes uh, in error. And you have, to be, uh, you have to be aware of that and able to, uh, to double-check what it is that you're looking at. All right. Now, in terms of greatest in the kingdom... Let me pull up a um, lexicon here, and we'll look at some of these passages. I made this text kind of small, didn't I? You're not reading any of this, are you? Is it too small for the background? Oh, you're reading some of it? All right. I don't want to make it so big that you can't then see a whole lot there. This is my favorite lexicon. This is the, uh, the uh, uh, Bauer, the BDAG lexicon for Megas. Megas, Megale, Mega. Uh, it's used, it's, it's an old term. It goes all the way back to Homer. Some of the earliest Greek literature that we have makes use of this term. The comparative is maison. There's a different comparative sense in, in mesoteros. And there is a superlative form called megastos. The superlative form megastos is actually attested. You see it right there. Megastos is attested in Second Peter 1.4. Now, as you might expect... Any term like great is really rather relative, isn't it? If I ask you if you're great, how, how do you answer that? Well, great in what way? Great at what? <laughs> right? Because you might be great uh, in uh, at bowling, but 
not that great at racquetball, right? Or you might be a great cook, but a terrible seamstress. Or you might be a great automotive mechanic, but you see what I'm saying? Great, how do you define it? It's hard, because great itself is an adjective that defines something else. And the context, obviously, uh, establishes the, the range of meaning for the term great. All right. Well, this is the kind of thing you can do with a lexicon, with a word study, as you examine the text. Uh, four main areas of greatness that, uh, that Bauer presents here. First of all, to exceeding a standard involving related objects. In other words, you translate it as large or great. If it's um, a great distance, well, that's comparative. It exceeds a standard involving a shorter distance. Some of us drove here a great distance and some not so great. So it could be used as an extension in space or an extension in time. Used with respect to rooms and things like that in Mark 14, 15, Luke 22, 12. A great wide door in 1 Corinthians 16. The great wine press in Revelation 14. The great broad chasm in between the realms of paradise and torments in Luke 16. Uh, if it's uh, if there's a number of objects like a herd or a flock, and then you have great numbers of sheep and, and things like that could be used of age. If you've reached a great old age. Mikros and Megos describe the young and the old there in Revelation 11. Um, so that's the first area of greatness. If uh, something has exceeded a standard. In terms of related objects, OK. Whatever that is, you know, you compare uh, just different numbers of things, different, um, you know, different uh, amounts of uh, Bible classes. Somebody asked me the other day, 3,000 Bible classes. That seems like a great number. Well, Charles Wesley preached 40,000. Okay, let's put some things in perspective here. Uh, You know, a Typical once-a-week Baptist kind of guy? Well, yeah. 3,000 is quite a bit. If you're only doing 50 a year, in any event, it's all relative. You see why that's relative? Because it's always compared to somebody else. And here's the thing. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, are we going to be compared to everybody else? That's right. He's not going to examine you and say, hmm, how did you do compared to so-and-so? He's going to examine everything you did and put it in either a wood, hay, stubble category or a gold, silver, precious stones category. And he's not going to look at your piles and say, hmm, how does it compare to these piles over here? No, your piles are your piles and you're accountable for what you do. So to a large extent, the desire for greatness is not wrong. But the desire for comparative greatness, who is the greatest, that's wrong. See, my desire to be great has no bearing on whether I'm going to be greater than anybody else. Because at the end of my life, I want to stand before Jesus Christ and be able to uh, be able to say that I was a great pastor. That's the goal. Or that I was a great husband. Or I was a great father. Okay? But if I'm defining greatness as saying, well, I was greater than so-and-so. Right? 
well, what does that mean? <laughs> okay? I'm a greater father than um, Attila the Hun, who didn't even know most of his own children. Okay? Does that mean I was a great father? No. This meant I was greater than... You see, anytime you go to that greatness by comparison mode, you're already doomed. Already doomed. And that's where these disciples are. Who's going to be the greatest? Well, greater than whom? Greater than Judas Iscariot? Okay, yeah, I think you'll make it. Greater than Jesus? No, of course not. See, and these people that puff themselves up with pride always pick those they know they're superior to or they think they're superior to. Right? Oh, it's a horrible thing. Anyway, that's the first realm where you've got, there's a standard and you either exceed it or you don't. And it's comparative. Secondly, uh, megas can be used in matters that are pertaining to being above average in quantity. You know, those that become pastors because they think it's a means of great gain in 1 Timothy 6.6 6, or great reward in Hebrews 10.35. Or maybe it's great, it's megas because it's uh, something pertaining to being above standard in intensity. Great power, great sound, great, great uh, joy, great anguish, great grief. So you have something that could be in terms of intensity. You know, you, somebody has a great, um, a great uh, pain. You say, well, what's so great about that? <laughs> well, I meant great in terms of intensity, not great in terms of how wonderful it is. It's not so great. You know, Gary's cancer is not great, but it's pretty great in terms of its intensity, in terms of its extent. You see, even in English, the same themes come across that they do in, in Greek or any other language. A great earthquake. What's so great about that? Great suffering in Matthew twenty four twenty one. And then ultimately, the fourth and final, and this is what the disciples are wrapped up in, great in terms of its importance. See, the importance, it, it may not have anything to do with quantity, it may not have anything to do with size, it may not have anything to do with dimensions or, or space or anything. It might just be a matter of importance. A great uh, matter I need to discuss with you. What's, why is it so great? Well, because it's urgent. It's a matter of tremendous importance. Something in, of superior importance or great. And that's what the disciples were wrapped up about. All right. Beyond uh, these usages, I think beyond the, the blue scripture references that are there, and you can pursue these terms throughout the Bible, that we also have reference to these terms in non-biblical literature as well. And you're able to look up these terms in Homer, in Herodotus, in uh, uh, the Greek writings, and, and be able to pursue Philo and, and uh, Josephus and all these other writings. This is what we're talking about in terms of our training ministry and what we're discussing in terms of men that are training for the ministry and we want to be able to parallel their greek training with their history training and one of the reasons why we're considering greek texts for our roman history so that we can double up on the, the language with the history work as well so i wanted to share some of that here and uh, let you know that these are some of the tools that we're using with our seminary students all right who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, who is the greatest? Now, mega, mega is our term. Modern American English is rather fond of the mega prefix. In fact, you can even make up words if you want. Just take a real word and stick mega in front of it. 
and you just made up a word. And it might even be in the dictionary. A lot of them are. Modern American English is rather fond of the mega prefix. I listed a dozen or so there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, I listed 11 of them. There were probably three times that many in the dictionary itself that are accepted English terms in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Megabit, megabyte, megacorporation, megahertz, megalomania. You have the uh, rather high opinion of yourself, <laughs> right? Mega merger, megaphone, megapixels. You know, you buy your digital camera, you got to be all wrapped up about how many megapixels it has. Go to the theater. Do they even have single screen theaters anymore? I mean, like, do they really? These old decrepit things from the 50s or what have you? Okay, small towns, that's right. Yeah. As opposed to the megaplex, megaton, megawatt. We've even gotten to the point now. This is how prosperous and fat and happy and, and wealthy that our nation is, right? Mega is too small. We don't measure in mega anymore. It's now giga, right? Who cares about megabytes? Gigabytes. So pretty soon, maybe the next generation, we're going to go past mega everything. Instead of mega corporations, we'll have giga corporations, whatever else. I don't know. Instead of megapixels, it'll be gigapixels. My grandchildren will come along and say, well, what's a, what's a giga? They'll have terms even bigger then by the time we get to that. All right. Now, what about this greatness? Point three, Christ had previously taught his disciples regarding kingdom greatness. In fact, twice. He's given them two classes already. And they're still arguing about it. Christ had previously taught his disciples regarding kingdom greatness. In chapter 5 and chapter 11, I'm giving you all Matthew references for this point. There's going to be Mark and Luke parallels, I think, to all of them, but we'll just keep it in Matthew. Matthew 5.19, Matthew 11.11. He's going to have to do so again here in Matthew 18 and again in chapter 20 and again in chapter 23. Again and again and again. Plus the first two times makes it again and again and again and again and again. Christ had previously taught his disciples. Let's go back to chapter 5. Remind ourselves. Christ had previously taught his disciples regarding kingdom greatness. See, this is really what we're, the goal is, is kingdom greatness. About being great in this world? That comes and goes. This world's passing away. I mean, even in, even in uh, those who truly have greatness in this world, they're forgotten in the next generation. Matthew 5.19. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's why in Christ we fulfill the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. See, even before he talks about greatest, he talks about least. 
The disciples are all busy arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Why don't they sit around and argue about which one of us is going to be the worst? <laughs> you know, can you imagine Peter and James and John? They're all sitting around at Denny's or wherever they are. And they're all saying, man, which one of us do you think is going to be the worst disciple in the, in the kingdom? No, they never debate that. Never debate that at all. No, as well, who's going to be the best? So whoever annuls and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what he taught them. He taught them not to be Pharisees. Don't be legalists. Live the word of God and teach the word of God in, in grace and in Christ. That's greatness. That's greatness. And he taught them that in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the, key, is the keynote address for the kingdom of heaven. It's the, it is the constitution of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. He taught them about greatness. And here they are arguing about it. Quit arguing about it and live the word of God. Chapter 11, he comes back to it again. It's not as if he just gave them a single lesson on it and, and now is uh, negative for, not, for, the, for them not picking up on a single Bible class. He gave them multiple classes on greatness and on humility. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's a pretty bold statement, right? It's like, raise your hand if your mom was a woman. Okay? And that includes you. <laughs> of those born among women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Then he goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So, in his first class on, on greatness, he taught them not to be Pharisees. He taught them that they had to exceed Pharisee righteousness. In other words, they had to live the word of God, fulfilling the law in grace in Jesus Christ. Here he's showing them the benefits of the kingdom of God and the distinctions, the dispensational distinctions, that the greatest, most rewardable hero in the dispensation of Israel can't hold a candle to the kingdom of heaven when it's fulfilled on this earth. See, not to, and, and that didn't even address the bride. The bride is an even greater pinnacle beyond that because the bride is actually in Christ, joint heirs with the Son. So if there's no comparison between an Old Testament saint and a kingdom saint, where does the church step in? So he's given them two classes on greatness. And here we find he has to give them a third class on greatness because they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he says, all right, stop, 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 stop that argument. Bring that child up here. You didn't figure it out with the Sermon on the Mount passage about exceed the Pharisees. And you didn't figure it out with the John the Baptist losing his head message. Maybe if I set a child here, you'll put it together. Become like this guy. Become like this kid. And sad to say it, the episode in chapter 18 doesn't stop their bickering. He has to come back to it again and again. In chapter 20. Hmm. 
in chapter 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus. Salome, we're told elsewhere her name was. She was the sister of the Virgin Mary. James and John were cousins to Jesus. When you combine the gospel accounts, I think you do some detective work in comparison. I think you come to these conclusions. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able about to drink? Now, we're going to get into this when we come to this episode. But can I just give you a clue here this morning? Seating assignments in glory are dependent upon suffering and victory in the Christian way of life. In other words, Jesus is seated where he's seated because he accomplishes the maximum for the glory of God the Father in obedience by going to the cross. You and I won't do anything approaching that. But to whatever extent we do suffer, so also we shall reign. And Jesus says here, to be seated adjacent to him. In other words, to be the second and third most rewarded believers in the history of the church age. You know how much suffering is involved in that? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said, oh yeah, yeah, we're able. <laughs> you bet. Just like Peter said, oh yeah, we'll follow you anywhere. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten, that's the rest of the twelve minus these two sons of Zebedee, the non-son of Zebedee disciples, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them to himself. See, they were just upset because they didn't have mothers that were Jesus' aunt, right? So Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great man, see, here's greatness, megas, the hoi magoi, the greatness. The great man exercised authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The servant attitude in time defines greatness in eternity. The Son of Man did not come to be served. If you think about it, think about every historical character that has the great attached after their name. Or the conqueror, in terms of William, right? Do we have Jesus the Great? Did, did Jesus storm this planet as a conqueror? As a great historical leader? Not at all. He actually laid down his life on behalf of mankind. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus has to go through it again and again and again and again. Finally, chapter 23. His fifth discourse on greatness Again, he's warning them against Phariseeism. They love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues. The respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by men. Okay? You know, if that's your goal in wanting to become a pastor, <laughs> hey, 
you get all the praise on a Sunday morning and you get called reverend and you get uh, designated parking space at Seton Hospital. <laughs> you know, oh, let me tell you. So he says, do not be called rabbi for one is your teacher. Do not call anyone on earth father for what, you know, that whole Roman Catholic father thing. Do not be called leaders. Anyway, in other words, don't lust after the title. Don't lust after the title because the title doesn't matter. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It's the way it works. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's in time. He will exalt you at the proper time. That's eternity. Point four, and we'll cut you loose for today. The disciples' conversation regarding greatness was out of Jesus' earshot, but not out of his awareness. Let's wrap it up here in Mark chapter 9, or Luke 9. They both kind of tell the same story. Let's go to Mark, Mark 9, and we get the idea here. See, if all we had was Matthew, then we get the idea that maybe they came to him and they asked him, right? Who's going to be greatest? In reality, he had to worm, worm it out of them. Mark 9, we compare Matthew 18 with Mark 9. I think we get the clearest picture. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? What were you discussing on the way? He was already there. They start coming in. What, what, what was that you were talking about there outside? What were you talking about as you were walking over here? And they kept silent. <laughs> They're kind of not comfortable talking about it. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. <laughs> you know, busted. Hello. That's not, not, not omniscience at work here. It's this gift of profit. Okay. So sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last, and servant of all. The first shall be last, last shall be first. It's not about promoting yourself. It's about humbling yourself and obeying what he has for you to do. He'll promote you in glory. So the disciples' conversation regarding greatness was out of Jesus' earshot, but not out of his awareness. As a prophet... God the Father would, would reveal things to Jesus that he needed to know and to pursue his training ministry here of these men. I make a note, which you see on the screen, the diligence he manifests through his prophetic office and ministry is significantly geared towards spotting the roots of pride and working on them immediately. Why does he keep hammering this? Why does he take five times to teach about this to these disciples? Not how many times it took to sink it in. The diligence he manifests through his prophetic office and ministry is significantly geared towards spotting the roots of pride and working on them immediately. See, in training these men, the first thing he has to train is their attitude. And the pride has to be rooted out. Has to be. And I think that's significant. I think that's a feature that we have to be on guard against in, uh, in training men for ministry. That's why in 1 Timothy we're told, don't lay hands on a man too hastily because he'll be lifted up in terms of pride and you'll share in the condemnation. 
Paul talks about Timothy there in, in Philippians chapter 2 in those regards. All right, well, I'm out of time. Uh, anyway, this, this deals with greatness. We'll have more to say on it next week, and then we'll move on and look at this child, and we'll see that the, uh, the principle is to become childlike in uh, application of humility. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together today, for allowing us to come together today, providing for us to be here, providing for your word to be taught. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.